0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis.
1: The fall of Constantinople foreshadows the crisis of progressivism in the Church today. One of the primary activities of the American TFP is to warn our society that it is destroying itself. We inherited that task from the founder of the international TFP movement, Plinio Correa de Oliveira. Professor Plinio was a man of many gifts, including great historical knowledge. His insights were so keen that he could draw lessons that other people, even accomplished scholars, missed. Today, the Return to Order moment brings you a remarkable talk that Professor Plinio gave in 1970. At that time, the world was in the midst of social and sexual revolution. That spirit grows more apparent as each year passes. Some of Professor Plinio's conclusions will be hard for 21st-century people to hear. Even conservatives may be momentarily shocked. However, we live in shocking times. The world needs Professor Plinio's advice more now than it did 50 years ago. So now we present The Fall of Constantinople foreshadows the crisis of progressivism in the Church today.
0: Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, was considered the Christian stronghold of the East, a city guarded by God and proud of its Greco-Latin tradition. In 1453, while ruled by Constantine Twelfth, the last emperor, it was besieged by Muhammad II, a Muslim Turk for whom the city's conquest was part of a holy war in which the East had to overcome the cross. Despite its decadence, Byzantium was still the heart of the Christian empire. With 453 ships and 500,000 infidel soldiers against only 8,000 on the Christian side, Muhammad began the fight, determined to win as a matter of honor. During the months the siege lasted, they planned the escape of Constantine the 12th, but he refused to abandon his clergy churches, throne, and people to the misfortune of the scourge of Islam. He ordered continuous public prayers and processions, with a large crowd meeting daily in Hagia Sophia, the principal basilica in Constantinople, to pray and attend sacred ceremonies on May 28th. However, Despite heroic resistance, the enemies defeated the defenders and seized Constantinople. No tragedy will ever equal this one in horror, wrote Christobulus, a Christian who served the Turks. It was a terrible spectacle. Unfortunate people drawn to the street by the screams were beaten and slaughtered without realizing what had happened. They were massacred inside homes where they tried to defend themselves and the church where they took refuge. Turkish soldiers were relentless. When the massacre was over and they no longer met with resistance, they began to loot and enrich themselves by stealing, destroying, pillaging, killing, Raping and taking men, women, children, monks, priests, and men of all ages and conditions captive. This gang from various nations, made up of unrestrained brutes, attacked convents and dragged nuns through the streets, raping and subjecting them to the most horrible outrages. Many died just predicting the fate awaiting them. Old men, full of dignity and respect, were pulled through the streets by their hair. Numerous children of the nobility of exceptional beauty were abducted or disappeared. Temples were profaned and looted. Sacred objects were contemptuously thrown to the ground. Holy icons and sacred vessels were desecrated. Priestly ornaments were torn into pieces and burned, or thrown into the streets. Reliquaries of saints were violated. Relics were ripped off and cast to the wind. Chalices of the holy sacrifice were used in orgies, melted, or sold. Priest's garments embroidered in gold with pearls or precious gems were given away at the best price, or cast into the fire to melt the gold. In Hagia Sophia, where the crowd prayed to the end, all Christians of mature age were killed, younger ones were imprisoned and sold as slaves. The Turks had their camels enter the basilica and ushered in prostitutes. They said Hagia Sophia, still with the perfume of holy ceremonies, would now become a stable and a pleasure house. In the meantime, Constantine, sword in hand, fought to the death. His corpse, at first lost among city ruins, was recognized by his purple sandals. Muhammad II had it beheaded and sent his head on a tour of Asia for several months, escorted by 40 captive boys and girls, to announce to everyone the victory of Allah over Christ. To have a vivid idea of the scene described here, we need to translate it into contemporary terms. It turns out there is a shocking difference between current terms and ancient ones. Constantinople, or Byzantium, was the most beautiful, luxurious, and affluent city in antiquity. It was considered the queen of the Mediterranean, with treasures accumulated by Byzantine emperors for centuries. On the other hand, it was a center of culture, art, civilization, and the seat of emperors so sophisticated that they treated emperors of the Holy Roman Empire of the West as hillbillies. They regarded all Western nobles as hillbilly nobility because they no longer had the luster or refinement acquired over centuries. Imagine that city suddenly sacked the way that we have just heard. Consider this church of St. Sophia, the most beautiful church on earth at the time, full of the faithful praying outside You can hear the masses of Turks entering killings and screams as people inside pray to God for help. In the meantime, the Turks approached, probably broke down the doors, and killed all the faithful as they implored, with hands folded, God's help through Our Lady. They were all massacred during that ceremony. God not only refused to help those people. After all were dead, he allowed the Muslims to bring camels and prostitutes into the building so they could claim that the most famous church consecrated to Christ on that side of the Mediterranean had been turned into a stable and a house of prostitution. How could such a thing have happened? If God grants all requests of his faithful through the intercession of Our Lady... How can one explain that a city that gave every impression of being holy could be destroyed like that as God seemed deaf to their prayers? One would say that God rejected his people and city. How can we explain that he allowed the accumulated treasures the consecrated virgins in convents, to be pulled out, dragged through the streets, desecrated hideously, mutilated and killed amid screams and shouts within the city. Icons, images, shrines, objects of worship, the imperial jewels, symbols of the Christian empire, the crown and the scepter of the emperor of Constantinople are all sold or melted to add to the looter's treasures. The emperor, who should be God's right hand and is fighting bravely amid his soldiers, finds no favor with God. He is found dead in the rubble, his face no longer recognizable. They identify his body by his purple shoes, which only emperors wore. Even worse, the young men and women of the nobility are caught and enslaved, The women are sent to houses of prostitution, and the men are employed in menial jobs. That recalls a lamentation of Jeremiah's, recounting how city nobles were comparable to a potter's children, that is, to commoners. Much more humiliating, the impious Muhammad II enslaves many young city representatives and displays them on a tour of the Mediterranean Basin. At the time, there was no telegraph or well-organized post offices, let alone newspapers. In this way, Muhammad II announced to the Mediterranean basin and the Near Eastern peoples that Byzantium had fallen. So he traveled triumphantly through his cities, where many Christians, reduced to captivity by previous Turkish conquests, groaned in humiliation. He walked triumphantly through this area and displayed, as a trophy, the flower of Byzantium's nobility, chained and serving him the victor. How can we explain that such a thing happened? Naturally, a first explanation is that God is unfathomable in his designs and can permit such things to test the righteous. But this explanation does not go very far. If we take into account what St. Augustine said, that peoples and nations are judged on this earth and men are judged when they die, God rewards good peoples and punishes bad ones on this earth. And we can understand how the people of Byzantium, albeit waging a holy war against the adversaries of the church, were handed over to God's enemies and decimated at the very moment they were praying and fighting. The explanation is simple. The same historical picture was seen at the fall of Jerusalem, inhabited by the chosen people, the beloved people of God. It was a very wealthy and famous city. Its temple was famous throughout the world for its beauty and riches. But at a particular moment, God handed it over to his adversaries. Why? Because of the infidelities of those close to him. In Constantinople, they were schismatics, and in Jerusalem, deicides. So God delivered them up to the vengeance of his enemies. Why were they not heeded? because they did not pray within the true church. They were in a state of willful, culpable conscience and recent apostasy from the Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. And whoever tries to please God outside the church obtains that result. God is absent and turns a deaf ear to such prayers. God refuses such entreaties and manifests indifference in the face of torments. They failed to address him in the way he established. As a result, their prayers went unheeded and everything was blown up and torn apart. The empire of Byzantium disappeared. Here we also have a lesson to understand the Catholic Church's immense passion in our day. How can wickedness prevail over the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church? How can it be that the Church which still lives, and thus one can say that the gates of hell have not prevailed against it, has lost the battle of the 20th century. How is it the big loser, sustaining a tremendous defeat from the inside out, the worst defeat of all? How is she abandoned by her own? Evidently, because of a deep hollowing out, infidelities from prior years, and accumulated punishments over the centuries. We are witnessing this ominous fact. The program of the Church's enemies in the last century is being carried out in this century by men of the Church. In more straightforward and direct terms, In the previous century, we heard the enemies of the Church say that the papacy was surrounded by luxury, that the Pope was only a local ruler who had excessive power, a despot of the Catholic Church. Today, you see the papacy, as it were, Agreeing with those impious criticisms and stripping itself more and more of that sacred luxury with which it was so deservedly surrounded, simplifying, proletarianizing, and plebeianizing its appearance. You see the Pope, as it were, successively handing over parcels of his power. The enemies also criticize the luxury and power of bishops now you see many bishops handing over all the power, authority, and splendor that surrounded them. People spoke against religious orders, claiming that they were disguised slavery. These detractors, claiming the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, reduced men or women in religious life to slaves of their superior. Now we see religious orders gradually suppressing obedience and turning into a kind of pension of prophetic groups of men and women religious without poverty and obedience, never mind chastity. In the 19th century, people spoke against ecclesiastical celibacy. Now, you see celibacy being cast aside by priestly and episcopal hands, defiled by cardinals, the Pope lifting it in specific cases that could easily expand to allow married men to be ordained as priests. In the last century, people spoke against the confessional. From the books that spewed a revolutionary view of history— you remember they claimed that to go to confession was a kind of coercion of conscience. Today, you see the church proclaim itself mature and free. Individual confession is deemed degrading and often replaced by collective confession in which no one recounts his or her sins. In sum, If you make a list of Freemasonry's demands in the last century and compare them with those of progressives in our day, you arrive at this astonishing conclusion. Everything that belief and Freemasonry tried to do in the last century and failed, as forces extrinsic to the Church, is now being done gradually by those inside the Church itself. There is no telling where this will end. I ask if this immense ruin of the church, in which it only does not die because it is immortal, is not very similar to the fall of Byzantium. Its treasures are sold, convents are emptied, and the faithful say prayers unpleasing to God and cannot obtain the graces needed. Isn't all this destruction 1,000 times more painful than that of Byzantium? Now, it happens within the sacred body of the church itself. Is it not more painful than the horrors done to the schismatic city Byzantium and the deicide city Jerusalem? What conclusions can we draw from this? It requires a theological interpretation of events such things do not happen without a profound cause. We must believe that God's action is intended to make us see and feel His wrath. If this is not a manifestation of God's wrath, then I no longer understand how God can manifest it. Imagine a strange disease, whereby all men acquired the mania of cutting open their bowels and committing suicide. All the media carried suicide propaganda, and everyone was committing suicide. Could a man in his right mind doubt that it was a punishment from God? Now, are we not witnessing something similar? Ecclesiastical suicide, so to speak, accompanied by the civil suicide of the bourgeois classes? It is obvious and shows how we enter apocalyptic times. Why are we considering all this? Because we must see reality as it is and not have a limited vision like any old fool around the corner reading in a newspaper that a bishop ran away, another got married, a cardinal did I don't know what, one of the most beautiful churches had its altar raised to the ground, full with the blessed sacrament placed on the floor in some corner. Let us not look at all these things as if they have no meaning, like an ox looking at a palace or a storm. We must understand the significance of this passing hour and feel small in the face of it. Remember that all our little interests and problems are nothing compared to this and that God will demand accounts of the benefits and graces He grants to us to witness the spectacular and massive manifestation of His wrath. We must keep our eyes on His wrath, be enamored with it, enthusiastic with it, and take a recollected attitude in the face of it we must ask God to free us from His wrath and beseech Our Lady to obtain this grace from Him. We must ask to understand all this and acquire a more serious, real, and profound notion of what sin is, what evil is, and the abysmal boundary that separates sin from virtue, error from truth. In so doing we will belong entirely to good and truth and be free from all remnants of error and evil. May the sin bringing God's wrath upon the world be uprooted from us. Here comes a mystery. Do not believe for a moment that we would be here without an entirely gratuitous and extraordinary love of Our Lady. It would be foolish, ungrateful, and perverse to imagine that we are here on our own merits. Our Lady loved us in anticipation with a love that embraced us when we could have no merit. We were loved when we were nothing and had nothing. We were called, we were preferred. What a mystery of paramount love to take weaklings like us with more than dubious gratitude and keep us together at this time against winds and tides with the holiest obstinacy no matter what we do and despite the evil movements of our souls. What a mystery of love and kindness for us to be objects of such mercy amid such wrath. What a contrast... Here is the meaning of our life, contemplating this contrast with delight, recollection, full of love, confidence, respect, veneration, and with that fear which is the beginning of wisdom. The fall of Constantinople is nothing compared to what we are witnessing. Today, if infidels descended from flying saucers and closed all the churches— We would be commenting about it in a great commotion and considering with great pity the good, virtuous, and faithful priests fleeing through the streets. We would be fighting to defend them. Something much worse has happened. The churches were not closed, but the priests stopped being good. I tell you, that is worse than having camels and prostitutes inside the church. Yet that is what has happened to us. I repeat, having camels and public women in church is less evil than having a progressive priest who propagates the ideology of leftism, pantheism, paganism, and all kinds of abominations. This is what we see every day. With what eyes? With what face? What is our attitude? Who are we? What do we make of it? My dear friends, the only way to wake up a sleeper is to shake him. There is no other way. Do not take offense. There is lethargy, and I must take advantage of every opportunity to shake it.
1: This concludes The Fall of Constantinople Foreshadows the Crisis of Progressivism in the Church Today. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. The other is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. You can help Return to Order be more effective. We would also like to recommend Mr. Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.